0: Log Talk Radio. everyone, and welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is genealogist Renata Yalboro-Sanders for our conversation about Finding Calvin, Discovering the Life of Her Enslaved Ancestor. Renata has been engaged in genealogy research since 1997 and has been giving genealogy-related presentations to a variety of audiences since 2012. She is the descendant of formerly enslaved ancestors as well as enslavers and free people of color. Renata is the author of two blogs, Into the Light, Which focuses on her own family history, and Genia Related, which is a platform for presenting a variety of information of genealogical interest. Renata is currently co hosting a summer series of webinars called Let's Talk North Carolina. Now, she has been sharing Calvin's story on numerous platforms, and is still working continuously to uncover more details of his life, both before and after emancipation. So let me give just a warm welcome to Renata Yelboro Saunders. Welcome, Renata. Hello,
1: Bernice. How are you today?
0: Hey, enjoying the day. The sun is shining, although I'm praying for all of the people in the path of Laura and just hope that they are safe and doing well.
1: Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me back on Blog Talk Radio on your show to this time discuss one of my well known passions, which is genealogy research. So, thank you.
0: Well, you're welcome. And so, let's just get started. So, tell us uh, when did you decide to start researching Calvin? Well,
1: it's kind of a, a mixed bag of the winds. I um, I don't come from a family that has reunions, or at least not regularly. But in 1993, my Yarborough line, which I had previously not known to be anybody except my father and his mother and brother and sister, um, had a reunion in Baltimore, Maryland, and as that reunion approached, uh, they sent out information showing that my grandfather, whose name I knew was Calvin, um, had a father whose name was also Calvin, who had 11 children. And I'd never known about any of them. And so this reunion was for the descendants of those 11 children. um, And it was the first time that we had ever come together. So that was when my interest was really peaked. And that was in 1993. Um, I started kind of asking questions of my dad, who was still living then. He didn't know anything. Um, I would ask his sister and his brother, you know, who were down in Lewisburg, North Carolina, living in the family home, and they would give me little tidbits, but they didn't really seem to know much of anything either, and then in 1997, unfortunately, my father passed away, and I was faced with having to write his obituary, and that was when I really realized how little I knew about his family origins, as well as really any of my lines. But I was very, very curious about his after having to write his obituary. So I used 1997 as the official formal start date of my research, even though I was kind of interviewing people and asking questions for a few years before
0: that. And, you know, uh, when you think about his passing and the fact that you had to, to put together this um, obituary, I could see you saying, well, this, this was kind of your rebirth of understanding your Yorborough line. Uh, but tell us, I mean, you're talking about a descendant of their 11 children that are all coming mm-hmm. together in Baltimore. In 1993, but even though Mm -hmm. you all were together in 1993, did you follow up with any of them or, as you said, you talked to his two siblings, but they didn't. They gave you little tidbits. Yeah, I didn't um,
1: shout and have a little bit of contact with a couple of them, But to Mm -hmm. be honest, it wasn't even mostly about genealogy. It was because I grew up with no first cousins at all and met um, the few second cousins that I have. I met them in my, like, uh, adolescent years. And Mm -hmm. so when I went to this reunion in Baltimore and I had, you know, I was married then and I had my two children and I discovered that there were all these children that, were my children's cousins, and so I kind of tried to connect with some of the parents of those children who were about my same age, which I just found fascinating because I didn't have any cousins. My father uh, was the only one to have children, so his sister nor his brother had any children, so when I did reach out, it was mostly just trying to see if I could create a new bond or a new connection with these cousins who were very much uh, close to my age within a year or two of my age on either side. So it kind of worked like there were a couple of them that, you know, we kind of kept in touch, but we never like got back together again with our children. Now I have to say that on out of the 11 children, there were maybe two or three of their lines who did know each other and had grown up knowing each other. Um, Mm -hmm. But for the most part, uh, also out of the 11 children, only five had children. So within a generation, they kind of cut the family in half. And most of the 11 children had, I believe it's 24 years between them, between the oldest child who was actually born during slavery, and the youngest child, who was um, the, my grandfather was the second youngest, so the one under him was the youngest, and he was born in 18, I believe, 1887. And so there's this big gap between the kids. So, of course, if you're 20, you know, 23, 24 years old, you're not hanging out with your newborn baby brother. And so the family just kind of grew apart. Um, and then some of them, like my grandfather, died young, leaving behind a widow who was not necessarily really yet connected with the Yarboroughs, you know, in a way that they were going to maintain the relationship. Sure. Um, and then there was the set that uh, – the ones that did have a relationship were from the set that actually left – I don't know if I mentioned that this is all Lewisburg, Franklin County, North Carolina – So the set that actually left there and moved to Maryland and New Jersey and then later one set of them moved to Ohio, they were all the children of siblings, and they still to this day maintain a very close bond. But they didn't know us or know
0: anything about us
1: that we even existed. Wow.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Calvin, your great grandfather. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about Calvin and your discovery? And just just talk to us. Tell us what you found. Okay. Okay.
1: So, you know, I do give a talk about Calvin that has been very popular. A lot of people have heard it. And I do have it coming up again in the, in about two weeks. So I don't want to give everything away. But um I will say that, um, in researching Calvin, I found out a lot of little tidbits about his life and his accomplishments that um I guess I would never have known because we didn't have any family lore, really you know there I mean again, I knew that my uncle, my father's brother, was Calvin the Third, so intellectually that meant. I had to somehow deep it within me know there was a Calvin Sr. and there was a Calvin Jr. But because they were never spoken about, and um, my grandfather, who was Calvin Jr., he's been gone since 1929, so way before I ever existed. Um, So there just weren't any stories. So for me, finding out really small details like the fact that my great-grandfather Calvin who um, was one of the founding trustees of the Colored Presbyterian Church in Lewisburg, which is now um, St. Paul's United Presbyterian Church, and it's directly across the street from our family home. Um, That's exciting for me to know that he was involved in that letter, in that, um, not letter, in the church, and being um, able to look at documents that he was, one of the signees on to get the land for the church and to build the church, that's exciting for me. Um, Another little interesting tidbit that I found out about him is that he was a teacher uh, in one of the Freedmen's Bureau schools prior to 1870. It seems that it was a short-lived gig for him um, because uh, it's shown in the 1870 census, but you never see him as a teacher after that. So my guess is that, you know, he may have had some level, enough of education to be able to read or whatever, but he he had not been away to school or anything like that. So I think once they started hiring people that had a little bit more um, background, then that must have faded away for him. Um I'm also really proud that he was a homeowner very shortly after emancipation. Um, I found tidbits in the newspapers showing me that he worked as a poll holder and that he was actually a deputy, deputy sheriff for a short time. So those are just a few to my research, but I still really long for stories. I just I have no stories and I have no pictures of Calvin, so I don't know what he looked like.
0: Well, one of the things you have just shared, were uh, what I would consider three accomplishments of Calvin, mm-hmm. but I want you to take us to Calvin's beginning. Tell okay. us when was when was he born? Uh, give just give us his his timeline: birth, marriage, death, so that we could get a a, a picture of who are we talking about, and then. Before he became the trustee, before he became the teacher, before he became the homeowner, what can you tell us about him? Sure. So that is actually what the focus of the talk that I give is.
1: Um, Calvin was born uh, somewhere between sometime in 1839 and 1840. I kind of just narrow it down to 1840, Um, and he was born uh, enslaved, I think that's kind of being assumed, Um, and what I have found is that Calvin actually had four different owners over 25 years of enslavement. What what happened was he was born to someone who was from Franklin County, uh, owned by someone who was from Franklin County, North Carolina, but had migrated to Fayette County, Tennessee, and very shortly before Calvin was born, within the year before he was born, the person who owned his mother passed away. The man passed away. And so the female, whose name was Chloe, and I should have said that. I'm sorry. So his owner, his first owner was Chloe Product, Perry Neal, and she married John Neal and went to live with him in Tennessee. When John Neal died in March of 1838, Chloe, a few months later, returned to Franklin County, North Carolina with their three children and with all of her slaves. And the reason I know this is because I did some work at the Southern Historical Collection at UNC Wilson Library, UNC Chapel Hill, where the Neal family papers are located. And I was able to actually hold in my hand letters that were written by members of John Neal's family, his brothers, to each other telling that John had died, giving the exact date that John died, and then a subsequent letter saying that Chloe would be returning to uh, her father's home in Franklin County, bringing her children and the slaves, and then a third letter, Um, From One of the brothers who had traveled with her uh, had gone out to bring her back, letting the other brother know that they had arrived safely at Casein, which is the name of the plantation in Franklin County. So all of this happened before Calvin was born, but within just a few months or so of his birth. Um, So Calvin was then born around 1840. And there's a timeline of events that I share in my talk that shows how each of his owners died and then he was left in a division of slaves to another family member. So he ends up spending the first 12 years or so of his life owned by Chloe Neal and then she passes away and in 1852 he ends up being given in a division of slaves to her daughter, Elizabeth Temperance Neal. Now, this is going to get kind of confusing um, for me to just kind of brush over it, but Elizabeth Temperance Neal, about a year later in 1853, marries a man named James H. Yarborough. Now, according to the laws of coverture that I've studied at that time, women, married women, could not own property unless it had been deemed in a legal clause that whatever property they had that they came into the marriage with could not be subsumed by the husband or anyone else. So when Chloe married James H. Yarborough, her property became his property. So all the slaves that she had inherited or, or gotten through the division after her mother's death, then kind of officially became the property of James H. Yarborough. So we've made it to 1853. Well, Chloe and, I'm, I'm sorry, Elizabeth and James had only been married for two years when Elizabeth became ill and died. And so Calvin is already, you know, with James H. Yarbrough anyway, but now he's definitely the, um, the property, as it is, of James H. Yarbrough. And all of these things that I'm telling you are shown in documents. So I have, you know, estate records, probate, division of slaves, uh, inventories. Um, and I even, you know, we have this whole controversy about slave schedules, uh, we can never say that someone we're looking at in a slave schedule is a particular person, but I can tell you that the uh, the age that Calvin would be uh, in each of the 1850 and 1860 slave schedules matches with documents that actually have his name on them, owned by the people that I'm telling you about. So it's just kind mm-hmm. of a supporting piece. But anyway, right. yes. so... You know, death is a theme, Bernice, in in, this, in my family history as well as in my current family. Um, we we aren't blessed with a lot of longevity. But just to kind of recap, we have Calvin starting off with Chloe. Chloe dies in 1851, and then in 1852, her property is divided. She, uh, Elizabeth temperance Neal, which is her daughter, gets Calvin. In 1852. The next year, she marries James H. Yarborough, who now becomes Calvin's legal owner because of the laws of coverture. And then in 1855, Elizabeth Temperance Neal dies. So Calvin is now with James H. Yarborough, who goes on a few years later in 1859 to marry another woman called Arete uh, Johnson. Well, James marries Arete Johnson in 1859, but guess what happens in 1860,
0: Bernice? You'll never guess. I know you're going to tell us. James,
1: <laughs> James A. Jarborough died.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So he had only been married to Arete, and some documents say Arete and some say Areta, but they had only been married 14 months, and then James died. So... He died intestate, tested, meaning without a, a will. And so, again, these enslaved people who pretty much had traveled as a group from Chloe to Elizabeth to James are now being divided again. And there's a big petition that you can see on the Digital Library of American Slavery where all of James H. Yarbrough's siblings and his mother and his relatively new wife, Arita, were um, petitioning for his property. And I'm I'm thinking because he had only been married to Arita for a short time that his family just wasn't willing to let her just have everything. But that's just me putting my current day opinion in there. So the division was done, and Calvin ended up with the widow, Arita Yarborough, and that was in um, – Well, he died in 1860, and he died right after the census, right, I'm sorry, right at the same time as the slave schedule. So the slave schedule is still in his name. And so I was a little uneasy to just assume that he stayed with Arita until emancipation since there had been so many changes. But luckily I was able to find that she lived a long life. She did not die till 1904, and so my assumption is that for those last five years that Calvin remained with Arita Yarbrough, unless I end up finding something different, she did not ever remarry, so there was no one to come along and and take her property and make it their own. So that's kind of the timeline um, that I walked through in my talk of Calvin's Ownership And, of course, during the talk, I'm showing the documents and, and talking about the analysis and how, you know, everything got figured out. But he ended well, up having four owners over his 25 years of enslavement.
0: Well, I am just fascinated by the number of documents that you were mm-hmm. able to find. So were you able to find them all at one time, or tell us about your research journey. In that you did mention the Southern Collection of UNC, but were there mm-hmm. other collections that you used? And how long did it take you to just piece this together with the uh, four different enslavers? I think um,
1: I I think that I got to the final one uh gosh it's hard to remember now I think it was a probably roughly about maybe a 10 or 10 to 12 year journey of uncovering all of that timeline that I just gave and even since then you know I've still continued to find more documents that support that work um and I'll tell you uh You know, when I got started, I didn't really know what I was doing, and we didn't have all these webinars and, you know, talks and stuff that I was going to and learning. So like a lot of people, I was just kind of fiddling my way for, you know, at least the first five, six, seven years of this. But what I can tell you is that all of the research was done in person. So this was all done going to... Um, The courthouse in Lewisburg, the Register of Deeds in Lewisburg, the North Carolina State Archives, uh, the Wilson Library, as I've mentioned, the cemetery uh, in Lewisburg, the church, so all of it was legwork, Um, and I'm very fortunate because I live um, just under three hours away from Lewisburg and about three and a half hours from the archives in Raleigh, so it's very easy for me. It uh, was very easy, and it still is for me to go where I want to go. But everything that I have mentioned uh, and, and all the documents that I found in person are now available online. <laughs> so,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so anybody who might be trying to do the same thing will have access to everything that I use, the estate files, the um, marriage records. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, the census of course, the census data, the slave schedules, um, the division of slaves, all of that stuff is available online, uh, either through family search or or and or ancestry. Um, I, I wanna talk but a little bit so about But you are so
0: fortunate though that you you live near so that you could go to the courthouse and see the original documents at the Wilson Library or the cemetery. I mean, it's something to be said about going local and going right there to the source. But also we're now, as you said, very fortunate because many of these documents are now online.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes, because at the time I was doing it, it
1: wasn't a choice. It was the only way I was going to see these things. <laughs> and so... Um, Yeah, people now are very fortunate, and so are we because at least now, you know, we can, like for my presentation, I tend to just grab the the documents from online rather than going through scanning mine that I have, you know, my copies that I have here and uploading them and all of that, so it makes it very Mm -hmm. easy. But I want to talk about one of the most important pieces of my research on Calvin, and that was the piece where I had to, where I was working so hard just to determine whether he actually had been enslaved or not. Because Mm -hmm. even though I assumed it, you know, I didn't see him in the 1850 and I didn't see him in the 1860, and so I assumed that he was enslaved, I yearned for many years to find anything that would prove it to me. And so in 2000, I've I've been telling people it was 2007, but I found something a couple of weeks ago that told me it was I'm wrong. It was 2006 um, that I was working at the North Carolina State Archives, and I was working with these records that now most people know about but I had never heard of then called cohabitation records. And if anyone's listening who's not familiar with cohabitation records, these were records that were, Created initially by the Freedmen's Bureau to legitimize and record marriages that had taken place during slavery that were really actually never legal because uh, marriage wasn't legal legal for slaves. But as we know, many of our enslaved ancestors did have life partners, and in many cases, they'd had ceremonies. They jumped a broom. They, you know, were married by their so-called master on the front porch or something like that, and sometimes even they were married by clergy. So after emancipation, the Freedmen's Bureau put this effort, put forth this effort to um, record those marriages, and it was done differently in different locations as far as what information was taken, Um, but the attempt was made. And I'm very fortunate because in North Carolina and also in Virginia, the General Assembly actually um, put it to law that these formerly enslaved couples had to come forth and register themselves and register their marriages. And so um, more than anywhere else, these records are stamped from Virginia and North Carolina. So I was there in the – Archives, and I can't remember how I, whether I saw it in the card catalog or if one of the people there brought it up to me, but somehow I found out that this thing existed, and I was actually able to hold the book in my hands. Well, it has to lay flat on the table, but um, <laughs> so I was able to touch the book and touch the pages um, for my great-grandparents, Calvin and Priscilla's cohabitation record. And of course, I know that they didn't write it. It was written by the clerk. But what I know is that they were standing right there before that county clerk when the record was written. And so I do share that in my talk. I shared, you know, a picture that I took then of the original document and, um, and the transcription of it. And the key words that helped to answer the question For me about whether or not they were Enslaved is that on the Cohabitation record it says uh, Before me today And I'm, I'm not looking at it so I'm Paraphrasing um, you know Before me today came Calvin Yarbrough and Priscilla Shaw lately slaves But now emancipated And it also wow. gave, Yeah it's Amazing and it also Gave the date From which they had been living As man and wife So they had been living as man and wife Since December 27 1860 So I have an actual date That I know something happened They had some kind of Ceremony for them to be able to give An exact date I know something Took place to bring them together As man
0: and wife Wow I could just imagine How it felt for you to see the original document and to touch the original document. Yeah. Were you doing the happy dance?
1: A, <laughs> I, you know what, Bernice? I was like probably ugly crying because, you know, on the one <laughs> hand, I was happy because I had been working for years to find an answer to this question. And, you know, my aunt who was still living at that time and living in the family home, she really wasn't the only person that I had that I could ask anything, and she, you know, she didn't know. She, she assumed her, that her grandfather had been enslaved just like I did, but she didn't know, and so this had been a big deal to me to be able to find something, so yes, I was happy on the one hand, but I also was, it was almost like a walking into a wall because at that moment, I realized, that he had a life of enslavement that you know whatever hope i may have held out that he had not been enslaved was just dashed in that moment and mm-hmm. and all of a sudden i had i had start you know really wondering like what was his life like how was he treated was he whipped you know what was you know was he just what was his life you know and mm-hmm. i still have a lot of those questions because of the fact that i don't have stories Um, so it was a double-edged sword. I was happy, but I was also very angry at the
0: same time. Sure. I can understand that. Well, you know, Mm -hmm. when you uh, first started talking, you mentioned, um, some of his accomplishments. And so Mm -hmm. back to this timeline, can you give us an idea of when some of these things happened. For example, you mentioned that he's listed as a teacher uh, in a Freedmen's (laughs) Bureau school. When and where is the school located, or was the school located?
1: So all I know is it was before 1870 because I found that in a record of the superintendent of schools North Carolina, and it lists all the schools in the whole state of North Carolina, whether they were, um, you know, Freemansboro schools or otherwise. It has the white schools and the colored schools all listed out, and it tells who the staff were and who, you know, um, even uh, as a matter of fact, I had actually forgotten about this. When I first found this, I was at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and I found it on microfilm. That was the day I met Angela Walton-Raji in person. <laughs> we we had been friends online, but I she came out and she met me, and that was the, um, the day I did the uh, Freedmen's Bureau Records on microfilm. And mm-hmm. what it showed, it was the um, report of the superintendent for 1869 and 70. And so that's why I say before 1870 because it's in that report. And I don't, mm-hmm. there are additional reports, but I don't ever find him in another one. I only find him in that one. And then on the census, it says he's the 1870s, I think it's 1870. It says he's a farmer. And then in parentheses, it says retired teacher. Wow. Yeah. So those are the two pieces of evidence. The interesting thing is there was another Calvin Yarborough in the area who was very close in age to my great grandfather. So I always have to be very careful and make sure I have some kind of corroborating evidence, like, you know, the name of his wife or one of his known children or something on the document to be sure that I have the right one. And uh, Mm -hmm. that was the case with this, you know, so when I, when I saw the Freedmen's Bureau record and it just said Calvin Yarborough, I wouldn't have been sure it was him if I didn't actually have the census records where he is with his correct family, and it says retired teacher.
0: So that would help. Right, which says something about his literacy, that somewhere mm-hmm. along the line he learned to read and write in order to be a absolutely. Teacher. Absolutely. Now, you also mentioned that he was a founding trustee of St. Paul Presbyterian Church. So, when did this take place? <laughs> so, let's see. Um,
1: I believe those records are from uh, uh, roughly 1872. And again, and don't quote me on this, but I think it's eighteen seventy two and eighteen seventy seven The eighteen seventy two record is um when they are purchasing the land now I'm really coming off my top of my head right now because um, I don't think I have it in front of me, but I believe the person that they yes I do have it on I have it on this timeline um He purchased the land, they purchased, not him. He purchased the land from E.N. Dent, and this is the land for the second church, which was in 1888. The first purchase was in 1872, so I did have that right, uh, where he's named as one of the trustees of the Colored Presbyterian Church and the deed is between the church and someone named J C Wynn W Y N N E and his wife and they were buying the land for the first church so that's what that was and then in, in, oh. in i think there was a fire or something and they had to purchase land again and that's why in 1888 they
0: purchased new land and they purchased it for $100 wow So then you also mentioned that he was a homeowner and a Mm -hmm. holder. So at what point did you discover that he owned a home? Um, That is seen
1: in the census, but it's also sadly um, in a number of newspapers because unfortunately after his death, his children were not able to keep up the taxes, and so the city ended up taking his home. And mm-hmm. I know the street that it was on, which is just a, uh, like just around the corner literally from where his son, my grandfather's house uh, was, is still. I actually own that house now. Um, but I don't know exactly where the house sat on mm-hmm. Mineral Springs Road. Um, but unfortunately, not just Calvin, but several other members of this family lost their homes uh, in the early part of the 20th century because they were not able to maintain the taxes. And there several, um, there's several – there's a real good paper trail of my um, – what would they be? My great aunts and uncles attempting mm-hmm. to – this home from the city taking it, but nobody seemed to be able to come up with the few dollars that it would have been to uh, purchase or to pay off the taxes that had gotten. Looks like they got behind after his death at some point, and um, so, yeah, that property was lost.
0: Yes, well, you know, I heard you say several times, you know, I really don't have the story, but really, you have a fascinating story. You have a story that's backed up by a lot of documentation to just just lay it out. Just everything that you need to know about Calvin, it seems like you have been able to, to find it. Is there anything else that you're looking for about Calvin, or do you feel you've exhausted all of the resources that you can find? I find? I will
1: never, ever feel that there's nothing left, I do, I get what you're saying, like, I do kind of have that feeling like I've exhausted everything, because when I try to do, you know, internet searches and stuff, everything just comes back to my own work, and, um, okay. you know, my my blog, and the things that I have posted about Calvin, but um, I will never say never, because there's so much more out there, uh, especially mm-hmm. maybe uh, academic writings, things that may be on happy trust that I haven't seen, um, surprising things that have come up on some of my other lines, like church records and stuff that have shown information about my formerly enslaved ancestors on other lines. I still mm-hmm. have hope that something like that might come up on Calvin and or Priscilla, his wife, who I've also done quite a bit of um, of work on. So. In answer to your question, no, I I don't feel like it's it's over, but um, the signs are just very far and few between. Uh, but I never will give up hope about Calvin not anymore. Wonderful. I, and, and what Both. I would like, I would like stories, but I don't think they're going to happen. Um, I would love to find a picture. Oh, would I oh. love to find a picture? Well,
0: well, let's I just know. hope that somewhere, somehow, one of the descendants will uh, discover a photo of Calvin. Well, we're mm-hmm. uh, getting close to the end of the show. Do you have any closing remarks or any tips you'd like to give others that may may want to consider going on a journey similar to the one that you just went through? Sure. I mean, I'll just say never say never and um, just make
1: your Your uh, research as Exhaustive as possible And to me You haven't exhaustively Researched anyone until you take Your last breath because you Never know what you might Find around the next corner So um, don't believe The hype that there are not Records available about Our African Ancestored ancestors um, For prior to 1870 because they're is a rich, rich, rich plethora of resources available, uh, documents available? Just remember that in most cases, to find that information, you will need to study their slave owners. And so that's the first key is to try to really narrow it down and identify who their enslavers were, and then you just have to widely research every corner of the earth <laughs> about that, not only that slave uh, enslaver, but that enslavers family, that enslavers friends, you know, that fan club that we know about friends, associates, and neighbors, so that, because, and I'll give just a quick example of why you would research a neighbor. Because we know that our enslaved ancestors were often hired out. And so when you see that an enslaver has a, a neighbor or someone that you see them interacting with in their business papers, it, it behooves you to want to check into that person to see were they hiring uh, people from their friends because that's what they did. So it's, it's, it's time consuming, but it's worth it to turn every page. And, Bernice, there's one thing that I just kind of glanced down at that I would love, if we have another minute, I'd love to be able to mention about Calvin. Sure. Okay. So I just want everybody to know, my great-grandparents, they must have known that I was coming and that I was going to do this, (laughs) because um, of their 11 children, their first five or six children, maybe seven, They gave those children middle names that have turned out to be the names, the surnames of some of their former owners, and they did that for me. I claim that because when I first noticed it with the first couple early on in my work, then I started to actually, you know, purposefully look. Into people that had those names, and their, you know, their names are Eaton and Shaw, which I already know from the cohabitation record was Priscilla's, what she used as her maiden name. She's, the cohabitation record says Priscilla Shaw, um, White and King. These are people's middle names, and you know, and Carter. Those are not normally middle names; those are normally surnames. But they did that for me so that I would be able to find out who owned them. And so and, and Neil, oh, my gosh, we've gone through the whole show and I haven't talked about the Neils. Well, I don't know if there's time or if I have to save that for another time, but I'll just quickly say that the one thing that my aunt did know and that she did tell me was that she remembered something about that we were really Neils and not Yarboroughs. And it does turn out, Remember that Chloe's husband was John Neal? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, ha- I can't believe I've left all this out. I have, after years and years and years of, of trying to figure this out, through DNA, I am connected to the descendants of a Neal from Franklin County who was a Neal, was enslaved by the Neals also, and... We are linked at the exact levels of DNA that we should be for their ancestor, James, to be my Calvin's brother. He was six years younger than Calvin. And Calvin named his very first son, and I promise you I'll I'll close with this, he named his very first son Louis Neal Yarborough, and there was a
0: reason for that. Wow. Yep. So, 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 listeners, I want you to understand what has just happened. Your ancestors do leave footprints and their clues, just as Renata just shared with us. So many clues: the middle name, the memory that Neil—that there really were Nils, they were not Yorubos. All of this uh-huh. has led the the journey, has put the journey together for Renata. As she said, they were waiting for her to discover this information. And Renata, I am so excited for you. I am happy that you were able to share with us your journey and share with us all of the various resources that you use. One of the most important things you did was you said you, had, you, you didn't just look at one document. You looked at several you also yeah. went to the various locations, but you also now are telling people, this information is online, but you had to study this. You had to know what cohabitation meant. You had to know what the various wills and deeds were saying and some of the laws. All of this led you to the journey to find information about Calvin and also about his enslavers. So I want to thank you, Renata, for coming on today. And best wishes to you as you continue to share your stories and continue your journey in genealogy. Everyone else, I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Goodbye, Renata. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.